team. <clears throat> Thank you. If I have any luck at all, it's usually bad. Uh, that's what uh, Eugene Roswell Jr. said in my hometown. Uh, fire destroyed his storage shed with his Jeep inside. He went into the house for a cup of coffee. The fire started while he was inside. The firefighter said, we heard a boom, and we saw the whole garage on fire. They said that they were on their way even before the alarm sounded, and they said when they pulled in the yard, Eugene was crying. Uh, the total damage, and this is many years ago now, back in the 90s, was $8,000. Uh, the whole garage, the Jeep, and all the contents, including a brand new bow and arrows. When I read Eugene's response and the fact that he was crying and said, you know, if I have any luck at all, it's usually bad, it reminded me of the old hee-haw TV song. Gloom, despair, an agony on me, deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If I had no bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. You know, uh, that was a, a joke, and many of you remember watching that. I believe it was on Saturday evenings that you would see that. But for many people, that is really not a joke. But it is the way that they feel in tragedy. Calamities and losses for many people produce despair, cynicism, inability to cope, and many times sinful reactions. And you know, one of the most important questions that we can ever ask in tragedy is this question. What are we living for? What are we living for? Do you know the answer to that question, perhaps more than anything else, will determine our happiness when tragedy strikes. Do you remember what Job said when he was struck by unbelievable calamity? Read with me what that great man of God in the Old Testament said and and the aftermath of what occurred because of his perspective. Let's read it together, shall we? And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Hey, that's quite a bit different than gloom, despair, and agony on me, isn't it? That's a lot different. And the reason Job could respond that way was because he was a man who was living by faith. In Job thirteen fifteen, a little bit later in the book, he says about the Lord, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. See, Job was living by faith, and that's why he could respond this way. Now today, we want to take up this issue of trusting God when tragedy strikes. Uh, we're returning to James chapter 1, 
And as we come today to this section in verses 9 through 11, we are looking at living by faith when tragedy strikes. And there's a little principle that James wants us to understand. And it's so critical that we see this this morning. Notice this principle that James works out for us. Tragedy can only be met by faith if we believe the paradoxes of faith. Now all of us know what a paradox is. A paradox is a contradiction in words, but it is still true. And a spiritual paradox is a contradiction in words as well, but it is also still true. But it takes faith for us to live that paradox. Believing the paradox then becomes the key to handling our misfortune. Let me remind you where we are at in this opening study of life in the midst of trials. Uh, James has uh, taught us these things. First of all, how to have joy in trials. Then he has taught us how we can have wisdom in trials. He will later teach us that there is a reward for trials. And now today in this little section, how to have an eternal perspective that will enable us to trust in trials. Would you take your Bibles and and turn to James chapter 1. And let's just notice these three very wonderful verses that are packed with such encouragement for us. Whatever calamity, difficulty, hardship, trial may come our way. Listen to what James says to us. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And now notice the reward. Blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord God, we remember the words of our Savior, that in this world, you will have tribulation. We think of the Apostle Paul, who wrote, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. And yet, Lord, our same Savior said to us, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. And the same Apostle Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so we thank you that we can have a perspective that goes far beyond the things that are taken from us in this life. And because we can have that perspective, we can rise up in faith. And trust you, no matter what may come. Lord, teach us today these paradoxes of faith. Uh, Help us as we see them this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's look together at this opening paradox that James gives to us. Here it is. 
He tells us in verse 9 that the poor are rich and the low are high. The poor are rich and the low are high. In verse 9, he begins by addressing the lowly brother. If you have the New International Version, it is the brother in humble circumstances. It describes somebody who is poor, who is undistinguished, who is low in position, power, or esteem. Somebody who has been disadvantaged in their life or is low in social prominence. Now, from verse 1, we know that James was largely writing to Jewish Christians. You know what happened when a Jewish person in the first century was saved? They were largely disowned by their family and ostracized. What if they were a partner in the family business? Well, they could be disinherited from that business. Uh, If a Jewish person embraced Christ... They were often kicked out of the synagogue. They were placed outside of the circle of social prominence. They very certainly would be despised and very possibly put in very, very difficult financial straits. Uh, One of the men who trained me to witness was Pastor Bill Jones. He said he first heard the gospel from a Jewish man who accepted Christ at an evangelistic crusade. He was 17 years of age, and when he came home and told his family that he was now a follower of Christ, he was kicked out of his home. That's the kind of person that James is writing to. Poor Christians, oppressed by society, really, really suffering. And yet notice what he says. He says about this poor Christian that they should boast or they should take pride. Now that's a a paradox. To be suffering, to be humiliated, to have had everything stripped from you, and yet he says they are to boast. It's interesting, the word boast here carries the idea of to take pride in something or someone. It has the idea of being triumphant in life. And so the person who boasts is uh, positive, they are victorious, they have a triumphant attitude towards life. They see themselves as a winner and not as a loser. Now, as we look at this, and we see that this is a paradox to the average person living in our world today, we ask a simple question. How can a person who is poor, downtrodden, and suffering have this kind of attitude? Well, I want you to think about it for just a moment. Being in this situation actually makes us more aware of the real spiritual values. Think about that. Think about people that you know who have gone through something like this. When we have what the world values, we often miss what God values. 
But when what the world values is stripped from us, it is often then that we see what God values in the greatest way. Look over at chapter 2 for just a moment and verse 5, and notice how James makes this point very explicit. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5 and how he draws this out. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You see what James is saying here? This is the way God works. He takes those who are often poor and and disadvantaged and suffering and, and the social outcasts as these believers were, And he helps them to see the true values of the kingdom. Some years ago, Pastor Bill Hybels preached a very interesting message. The title of the message was, The Often Overlooked Benefits of Losing. How's that for a great title? The Often Overlooked Benefits of Losing. And in that sermon, he talked about a a man who found himself on a hospital bed. And this is what this man said. He said, I came to realize I no longer really cared for what the world chases after, such as how much money you have in the bank and how many cars are parked in the garage. As it says in Ecclesiastes, chasing after these things is like chasing the wind anyway. Suddenly the rat race became vanity to me, utter vanity. I felt naked before God. If I died, I would take none of the stuff with me. All that really mattered ultimately was my relationship with the Lord and my relationship with my family and my friends. And then the man said this, If it weren't for the loss of my health, I could have wasted the rest of my life chasing achievements and acquiring more transitory things. And suddenly being on a hospital bed unexpectedly caused him to see the reality of spiritual values. I wonder, have any of us ever felt naked before God? Have we ever felt stripped of everything? You might be in that position right now. And if you are, you are in a position to see the alternative truth in this paradox. Because as we untangle this paradox, uh, the first truth that we have seen is Christians are often poor and despised. That's who James is writing to. But it's when we're in that situation that we see the other side of this paradox. Christians will be rich and exalted. He says about this lowly brother, let him boast in his exaltation. Do you know this word exaltation actually refers to heaven? The Bible says about every Christian, That we have all been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. 
The Bible says that God has given to us all that we need in salvation and the Holy Spirit for life and for godliness. And all of these blessings originate from heaven because they are spiritual, not physical. They are the result of being what the Bible describes as in Christ. Because of our union with Christ by faith, we are the recipients of all of these blessings. Now think about what that means. No matter how much of a loser we may appear in the eyes of the world, God says that we are a winner. If we are hungry, we have the bread of life. If we are thirsty, the Bible says out of our innermost being is flowing rivers of living water. If we are poor, we have the riches of God in Christ Jesus. And if we are ridiculed by people, we're esteemed by God. If our home burns down and we lose all of our possessions within it, we have a glorious home in heaven. In fact, you know, in Luke's version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very first beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the person who perceives this, says James, is able to face calamity, loss, difficulty, and hardship, not only with joy, but with an eternal perspective that strengthens our faith rather than weakens it. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham talks about being with his wife Ruth on an island in the Caribbean for a vacation. And one of the wealthiest men in the world happened to have a vacation home, a luxurious home on that island. He was 75 years of age, and he was one of the wealthiest men in the world, and so he invited Billy and Ruth to come and have lunch. In the book, Billy Graham says that during the lunch, this wealthy man was near to tears throughout the entire meal. And this is what he said. He said, I'm the most miserable man in the world. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere that I want to. I have my plane and my helicopters. He said, I have everything that I want to make myself happy, but he said, I am as miserable as hell. And Billy said that he and his wife Ruth, they, they prayed with him. They tried to point to him, to Christ, who alone can give happiness and, and real satisfaction. Then they left that lavish home and they went to their little cottage where they were vacationing. That afternoon, the local Baptist pastor, he came to visit them. Uh, he too was 75 years of age and he was an Englishman 
and he uh, spent most of his time as a widower caring for his two invalid sisters. Billy Graham wrote in his autobiography, he was full of enthusiasm, love for Christ, and love for other people, and he said this, he said, I don't have only two pounds to my name that I can rub together, but he said, I am the happiest man on this island. When he left, Billy turned to his wife, Ruth, and said, of the two men that we visited with today, who is the happiest? Who is the richest? Well, you know the answer to that question. You know the answer to that question. To have all that you could ever want and yet have a hollow soul never leads to satisfaction. But to have very little of what this world offers and yet have a soul filled with Christ is true satisfaction. You see, it is the first paradox that if you are a Christian, you believe. And in the times of the hardship of your life, you come to this passage and you say, this is painful, this hurts, but by faith I believe the poor are rich and the low are high. And I am trusting God that though I may be poor and despised, I know I will be rich and exalted. What a great faith builder in this world in which we live. Look with me at the second paradox. Here's the second one. The rich are poor and the high are low. By the way, where are you hearing this in American culture today? You hear this on TV? Hear this on the radio? In fact, you won't even hear this in some churches, will you? But look at this. James turns in verse 10, and he speaks to the rich Christian. And he says, the rich person should boast in his humiliation. Now again, this is a a paradox And let's untangle this paradox for just a moment. Uh, The first part of the paradox is misfortune is often our best teacher. Now, there were some Christians who were rich in the first century. We think of Nicodemus. We think of Joseph of Arimathea. And when he describes here uh, their humiliation or their low position, the point that's being made is the rich believer had been brought low by trials. And if we ask who had done this, well, it's very clear that God in his sovereign plan had allowed trials to come and the rich believer had lost much of what he had enjoyed. Oftentimes when Jewish Christians would come to the Lord, they would end up, as we said, being outcasts, 
losing their wealth in persecution. In fact, turn back with me for just a moment to Hebrews chapter 10, and let me read for you a description of some of the things that happened to some of these early believers. Look at verse 32. Look at it. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, some of these believers had been humiliated by severe trials. What could be worse than, than, than going bankrupt or, or losing it all, some of them even ending up in prison? And yet, notice what James says. Boast. Boast in your humiliation. That's a paradox. Why should we do that? Because it is in that humiliation that the person who is rich and and has everything now has lost it, understands what is truly valuable. Now the Bible does not say it's wrong for us to be wealthy. But it does warn against the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust can decay and where thieves can break in and steal. Material things do not ultimately give us inner and lasting satisfaction, and material things and wealth can never really give to us spiritual help. It's always very, very helpful for me when I'm uh, sitting in my, my car that's, you know, a decade old and, and, uh, and I've got over 100,000 miles on it and I'm sitting at the red light and a person half my age pulls up next to me in a brand new car. And I'm sitting there in my car looking over at them and they're half my age and I'm thinking to myself, life is not fair. I went into the wrong profession. (laughs) And it's helpful to come back to this and say, in just about 10 years, that car is going to be exactly where mine is now. But to recognize that's that's where life is not at. You know, one of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. I think it's one of the greatest movies that has ever been made. And it's one of those movies that capsulizes the main point 
at the very end in a single sentence. You remember after Clarence, the angel, is left, and Jimmy Stewart has been restored to happiness and wholeness? You remember the main point of the movie? Of course you do. Remember, no man is a failure that has friends. But when did George Bailey learn that? He learned that when he lost it all. He learned that when he thought his business was was going to go bankrupt and that he might possibly be going into jail for malfeasance and mismanagement. And the amazing thing about that movie is, throughout the movie, it appears as though George Bailey has been the sucker. He's been the sap. His friends, whom he is more talented are, have gone on to bigger and greater things. Even his brother, whom he saved from a certain death as a child, has become a war hero. And George Bailey has stayed behind simply caring for the people in what he calls that miserable little town. But it's when he finally loses it all that he begins to recognize that he has been the richest one in the town because through his efforts he has made friends. Now, do you know there's a similar point here? But the point here is even better. The point here is even better. When we are humiliated by some misfortune as a Christian, we learn what is truly valuable. And that's the second part of this paradox. We learn that only the eternal will ultimately last. That's what we learn in the midst of misfortune in a way that we may never see it when things are going so well. Look at this in verse 10. Let the rich person boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now you know the lesson. Riches are temporary. And rich people will pass away, leaving it all behind. It's interesting what James describes here in verse 11 was very common and it's still common in the Middle East today. Uh, In the springtime, the flowers uh, bloom and uh, the fields uh, just look pretty and lovely and the grass grows. Uh, But then as the summer begins to come on, the Scirocco winds uh, come off the desert in the Middle East. It still happens to this very day. And those winds with their wilting heat come across the fields and almost overnight the flowers uh, wilt, uh, the grass dries out, uh, the petals fall down. And what James describes here is exactly what happens every single year in the Middle East. 
You know what this is? This is a picture of the reality of human wealth. Look at it, how it works. The sun rises with scorching heat. The grass withers. The flower falls. And the end result is that its beauty perishes. And then James makes the connection. So the rich man fades away in all of his experiences and his fortunes. And you know, the key to this entire illustration is the last word. Because the word perishes not only is used of grass withering, but it is used of people dying. And James is telling us that the rich man fades away in all of his pursuits, he perishes, and he faces the scorching heat of the judgment of God. Do you know, as I was preparing for this sermon, I... I came across another experience that Billy Graham talked about. He said one day he was on a uh, national TV talk show, and one of America's most famous personalities was on that show at the same time he was. He said privately, when they were not on TV, she told him about the emptiness of her life. Listen to what this woman said, and all of us would know her if Billy Graham had given her name. This is what she said. My beauty is gone. I'm getting old. I'm living on alcohol. And I really have nothing to live for. And Billy Graham wrote these words. That emptiness is typical of thousands of men and women throughout the world. It is exactly what James is describing. And what a wonderful thing for us as believers. When misfortune strikes, we can say, That is my best teacher. My best teacher. And what that teaches me is that only eternal realities will last. Only eternal realities can ultimately never be stripped from me. And only eternal realities can truly satisfy the soul. And when we learn that, no matter how hard it is, we grow in faith. You know, as I think about this, and I I have to be very honest with you, I need this lesson so much. I need this lesson so much. I, I sometimes am in the illusion that, Lord, 
Now that I'm going to be 60 and have been following you uh, at 60 in a couple of years, and I've been following you since I was 15, 16 years of age, life should get easier. And I've discovered that it doesn't get easier. The trials sometimes can even get more difficult. And so I come to a passage like this, and it lifts my eyes to a horizon that is so helpful for me. But I want us to consider here, as we conclude this morning, some questions that all of us need to ask ourselves, because we can hear a message like this, and then just sort of walk away, and yes, I've got the truth, but it needs to penetrate down to where we live. And so let me give us these questions. Here's the first one. Are we wasting or investing our time? Are we giving all of our time to temporary things? Or are we giving some of the most important part of our time to eternal things? That's clearly a very important lesson that has to come out of a passage like this. Here's a second question. And I hope that this really speaks to all of us. Who will thank us in heaven? Who will come to us in heaven and, and thank us? As Christians, we are all going to heaven. But wouldn't it be tragic to be in heaven and have very few people come and thank us? What a tragedy that would be. Are we involved enough in Christian activity and Christian ministry so that other people are helped? So that in heaven someone may come and say, you know, I came to Christ because of your influence. Or because of your life and your ministry and the the time that you gave to the Lord, I grew in my faith and that had a huge impact on my family. And in heaven, they just want to thank us. Who will thank us in heaven? A third question I think is so important that comes out of this is five minutes after death, Will we wish we had laid up more treasures in heaven? Jesus told us, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust can corrode and where thieves can break through and steal, but but lay up treasures in heaven. And the only way to lay up treasures in heaven is to send them on ahead. We can only do that now by our investment in the gospel and in the kingdom of Christ. And five minutes after we are dead, will we say, I wish I had sent more treasures ahead. Finally, number four. What example are we leaving behind for our families to follow? When we are dead and gone and and our influence is now just a memory in their lives, Will they say about us, we invested in eternal things. 
And maybe someday when a hardship comes their way for those that are not following the Lord now and we've prayed for and and we've sought to see them come back to the Lord, maybe someday in the future, long after we're gone and they're going through a hardship and things are stripped away, they will remember about us. We invested in spiritual things and they will begin to realize that's the way they ought to go. You see, how important are all these questions for us? And think about them. If we can focus on them and learn the lessons that James has for us, what an encouragement to our faith in times of real hardship. Take a moment with me and let's thank the Lord. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, as we prepare to come around the table of the Lord, perhaps you are like me. You often need to be reminded to have an eternal perspective. And I don't know which of these questions may be the one you need to wrestle with the most. But I've been a pastor long enough to know that these are questions the Church of God in the United States of America needs to wrestle with far more than we do. And as we are here in the quietness of this service, as we will be spending some time privately before the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit during communion to search us and try us and know us, to lead us in the way everlasting. Whatever question has pricked your heart, and drawn you towards the Lord in a way that causes you to know I need to do business with my Lord. May you do that now while He is speaking to you. The activities of the day will take us away to other things. And now is the time to let the Lord have His way in our lives. Lord Jesus, we, we love You today. We thank You that we can be overcomers. We thank you that you plan and purpose and sovereignly permit every setback, every difficulty. Nothing comes our way apart from your 
ordained hand. And we can either be destroyed by that, or we can live in the great paradoxes of our faith and grow stronger and truer and more focused on the things that will never pass away, holding loosely in our hands the things that will pass away. Thank you for the very real and clear instruction of your word that doesn't try to resolve this to our earthly satisfaction, but calls us to something far higher and far better. Meet us now around your wonderful table. For Jesus' sake, amen.